right. Our, 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 our passage before us today is, is Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2 is that story of, well, as I said, it was, it's a spy story. It's an, it's an espionage story. It's a story of intrigue and deception, treachery and faithfulness. It's a story of surprise. Who would have thought that this woman would do this thing? And yet... This is the story that's before us. It's a story that you might have heard before, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could tell it a new way because I want to help us to somehow get into this story. This is not just a story that happened a long, long time ago in a, in a place far, far away, you know, back before that 3,000-year-old tree was born. No, this is, this is a story that's also can be stepped into today. Our heroes in the story, two men are going to step across the Jordan River. And they are going to spy out the land. They're going to enter an enemy fortress in order to find out how things are there and report back. That's a scary deal. And yet, the same kind of thing that they do is something that we are told to have courage to step into. So I thought maybe it'd be better to to tell that story from the perspective of somebody who is in the middle of it. So if you'll bear with me a little foolishness, they say the, um, no, I'm not going to go there. But if you would just bear with me, then, then um, we'll try to tell the story from the perspective maybe that you haven't heard it before. I like this robe. It's got shiny gold stuff on it. And that's appropriate because you see, I am one of the princes of Judah. Now, perhaps you don't know me, perhaps you wouldn't remember my name, but I come from an important family. I was important in my generation. In fact, my father, my father Nashon, was was the leader of all of our clan, the leader of all of Judah, when God brought Israel and all 12 clans out of Egypt. My father, Nashon, was the head of one of those, a very important clan of Judah. And in fact, he was the brother-in-law. His sister married Aaron, the high priest. So he was the brother-in-law of the high priest. You could say, (laughs) our family had connections. So, that was 40 years earlier, however, and um, my name is Salmon, and rather than tell you more about my father and that day, that day all the way back at the, at the, at the Exodus in Egypt, I want to tell you about what God had set before me, because now we were no longer wandering through the wilderness. Now we had come to the area of Shittim right across Jordan. From this beautiful valley plain, this beautiful plain and, and crops growing and wonderful fields and right in the middle of it, blocking the way into the land that God had promised to us was a fortress city called Jericho. Now this city was there in that place, even though it's really out of the way as far as the major trade routes and so forth, but the city is there because of the routed blocks into the highlands and then into the heart of the land of Israel itself. It's a very strategic location. This city 
had, had already been there at this time over 6,000 years. It was one of the oldest cities on earth. And there it was between us and what God had promised us. And so, perhaps it was because that I was somebody from an important family. Or perhaps it was I was from one of the two families, the two tribes that, that had believed God the first time around. But Joshua called me in another inn. And he said he had a secret mission. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? A secret mission just for us. Nobody's to know that we're going to go across the river. We're going to spy out around Jericho. We're to take careful notes of the highways and the, and the features of the land and access points. And we're to slip into Jericho itself and learn anything we can about its defenses. Because God has given that city into our hands. And yet that still means there are things for us to do. A spy mission. Now that makes me a little nervous. You see, 38 years ago we had a spy mission, and that one didn't go so well. Moses sent 12 into the land in the days of my father, and they were to go in, and they were to see that the land was everything that God had said that it was. And it was. They came back, and they brought this huge cluster of grapes that they had to hold it between two, two men on a pole. They, they, they told us about the beautiful fields, the beautiful vineyards waiting for us to harvest. They told us about the lovely homes that had already been built, cities that we would live in. And yet they also told us that there are giants in the land. And as good of a land as it is, 10 of those men said there's no way that we could ever take it. There's no way that we could ever have it because there are men there that we would never be able to defeat. And so that generation chose to fear men instead of follow God. And we wandered as a result for 38 years in wilderness and desert. And while we wandered those 38 years, maybe it seemed like God's discipline of us. But really for 38 years in a desert with nothing, God was teaching us that we must depend on him and that he was faithful to provide. Day after day after day after day. But after 38 years, it was after day, after day, after day, after day. But now was this day. Now was the day when again. And maybe that, then I kind of realized yeah, that's probably why Joshua only chose two. He didn't need the other ten. They weren't going to be helpful anyway. So this time there was only going to be two spies. And we would better be careful about the mission God had set before us. And so we went, well, how are we Israelites? I mean, they already know that we're here. How are we going to ever sneak into Jericho? Won't my nice robe stand out? I know what we'll do. We will disguise ourselves as everyday Amorites. You know those Amorite folks, those people that we have been clearing out on this side of Jordan already. We will disguise ourselves as Amorite refugees. Certainly the Jericho people will, will take in a couple of more Amor Amorite refugees, right? Who have just been bullied by Israel on the other side of the Jordan. You know the old, the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Maybe they would look to us to give them some information about Israel. Who knows? So, that's what we did. We, we disguised ourselves as Amorite refugees, hopeless, on the lamb. And off we went into the land. And we came to the gate. 
of Jericho. Our disguise worked. Our story held. We, we gained entrance into the gate, past the elders of the city, and, and as we mulled about the, uh, the open area there in the marketplace and talked to people buying and selling, where is it that a couple of hapless poor Amorites like us that didn't have a lot, that didn't have any place to go, where could we perhaps find a shelter, a place to stay? Where could we men find a bed? They said, oh, we know, we know, we know where to send you. And they said, there's this woman... Down in the lower part of the city, there's this woman named Rahab, and she has been known to provide a bed for men who were traveling through. She's been known to take men in and to provide what other services those men need, they said with a sly wink and a toothy grin. And we got the meaning of what they were saying, of what kind of place they were sending us to. But we realized that a couple of traveling men like us That was actually probably a pretty legitimate cover. That would probably work. And so we went. We went to find the home of the woman named Rahab. Now Rahab, you wouldn't be surprised to learn, did not live on the right side of town. She did not live on the right side of the wall. What do I mean by that? Well, Jericho was a fortress city. Jericho was a city that had actually a double wall construction. It was really, it looked to us, if we were to report back the facts of the matter, we could say, guys, this city is impregnable. There is no way that we're going to get through those walls. I mean, first of all, they have this 10 cubit high. You remember the cubit thing I was complaining to you earlier. They had this, this 10 cubit high or maybe about 15 feet or more of a retaining wall that you couldn't break it down. You couldn't bash it in because it was a retaining wall against the remains and the dirt and the rubble of the earlier generations of city underneath the present one. But it still formed a steep wall to those of us who were outside. On top of that 10-cubit, 15-foot wall, there was another 8-foot of a brick wall built above it that was about 4 to 6 feet thick on top of the existing wall. So we're looking way up there in a wall, kind of like that. What are we going to do? Well, then the, the, the city inside that wall, the city then sloped further upwards. And then, a little ways up the hill further, there's another wall, another eight foot, or roughly um, what that would be. I, th- I think it was about five, maybe six cubits. Uh, another wall, again, four to six feet thick. And there was the inside of the city proper. You see, so even if somebody were to somehow get up and over or through or in the gate of the initial wall, they still, now they're in this what's kind of a no man's land in, the, 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 in between the two walls where the people behind the upper wall in the upper city, they can just stand on top of their wall and shoot down on you. It's a terrible place to be. And not only that, then they filled that lower city with people. But not important people. Not people that they, were, they cared about but a rougher sort of people, the disposable people of the city, the people that they didn't re- wouldn't really let into the upper city beyond the second wall, but they had to live in that lower section because they built their houses, and it was all the more obstacles for any invading army to get through. And the rulers of the city knew that anybody 
in that lower part of the city, if an invading army broke through, that they would fight desperately, tooth and nail themselves to preserve their own lives, and that would be the first line of defense if an army were to break through that outer wall. So it was a masterful, if even a despicable scheme. But it was that lower part of the city through the rough part of town, with rough people in it, that we made our way through and we came and we knocked on the door of a woman named Rahab. And she opened it up and she let us in. She didn't even ask us much about who we were. She seemed to know something that we did not. She let us into the house. And uh, she began talking with us and she, she, she provided us some food. And, and uh, she, she also then took us upstairs onto the roof and she actually suggested here were some stacks of flax that we could actually hide under if we needed to. Now, why would a couple of Amorite refugees need to hide? She seemed to know something that we did not. And so we just, just about that time, there's a knock on the door. It's a firm knock. It's a you better open this now kind of a knock. And, and who, who is that? Is that? Is that homeland? Is that... Is that Is that immigration? Who has come to the door? It seems our disguise did not hold. Somebody saw through our attempts at pretending that we were Amorites. And maybe it was actual refugees themselves. They said, they're they're not with us. Somebody told the police. And the police told somebody. And somebody went to the palace. And the king found out. There are Israelis in our midst. Mossad has come to Jordan. There are spies within our city. You better do something about it. And so he sends his security forces, and they go through, and they, they, funny they knew just where Rahab's house was, but they arrive, and they go, and they bang on her door. Surprisingly, they didn't just bust it down. Maybe, Maybe she had connections that we didn't know about. I'm not sure, but we were nervous. What are we going to do? Do we jump out the window? Maybe we're going to break a leg on that, on, that, on that long drop down all the way to the ground. We, we, so we, we, we hide under the flax, and we can listen to the conversation that's happening in the doorway down below. And they said, there are Israeli spies, and they've come to your house. We know that they came here, so bring them out, or we're going to arrest you. And, she, and she, she knew how to handle these guys. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, they were here. They, you know, it's funny. Sometimes men just don't stay long. But, uh, you know, they came. They were clients of mine. And, uh, you know, then they left. They said they had other things to do. They, funny, they asked before they left, they asked me, what time does the, the city gates close? So you say they're spies. I bet they're headed out. I bet they're headed out the gate before it closed. I bet they're on their way back to Jordan right now. In fact, if you hurried, you could, you could probably catch them. Well, unless, unless you wanted to stay here a little while yourselves. But then you probably wouldn't, that probably wouldn't be a good thing to do. I mean, the king, if the king were to find out that here you were dilly-dallying around when you're supposed to be out chasing these, these, these spies from Israel, <laughs> he probably wouldn't be real happy about that. So, so, so if you hurry, if you hurry, you'd probably catch them. That would make the king happy. And so they bought it. They went for it. I mean, they didn't even, they didn't come inside. They didn't look around. They didn't come upstairs. They, they went for it. They dashed to the gate to get out there. They had the gate closed behind us just in case we were still somewhere within the city that we'd be trapped inside those walls. And they rushed off down towards the fords of Jordan. Rahab came back upstairs. 
we were like, why did you do this? What have you done? Why, why did you not turn us in? Why did you put yourself at risk to save us? Men, you don't know it all. And she said, I know who you are, and I know why you've come. All of Jericho knows that the Lord, Yahweh, has given this entire land into your hands. Wait, did we hear her right? This is a, 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 a woman in the bad part of town in Jericho, in pagan Jericho, Canaanite Jericho, is using the name not of El or Baal, but is using the name of Yahweh, the covenant, faithful, merciful, loving kindness God of Israel who has brought us into covenant with himself. She is using that personal name of God. That caught our attention. She said, all of Jericho knows, all of Jericho has heard. We have heard of what your God has already begun to do, how he, how he parted the Red Sea and delivered you out of Egypt and destroyed all of Egypt's army. So we know this Jordan River is not going to be any defense for us. We have heard how your God has given you the victory over all of the armies of the kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, and how you've you destroyed his armies and you've taken all of those cities, that entire land. So we don't have any confidence that our soldiers or our little fortress here at this city is going to be of any defense against you. Well, it's not you, but against your God. And so all of Jericho, our courage has dissipated. In fact, we, we don't even have breath because of our fear or of what your God is bringing upon us. And so she said, that is why I have betrayed my own king here in Jericho in order to be faithful to you because now I need you to be faithful to me. Now, this was an odd turn of events. Who expected this woman of Jericho, Rahab, of all people, to be talking to us about how she was faithful to us and that we must now be faithful to her? This is a woman that in her own experience, in her own life, in her own background, had not known the faithfulness of anybody else and who had not herself practiced faithfulness toward others. And yet, this was a woman whose heart was crying out for faithfulness and mercy, for God's chesed, God's loving kindness to be extended to her. She was merciful to us. She spared our lives, and now she asked that we would spare hers. She said, give me an oath Swear by a solemn word and give me some token, some pledge by which I will know that as I have spared your lives, so my life will be spared. I will be shown mercy. We responded in words that seemed fitting and perhaps they were more fitting even than we realized. Woman, our lives for yours. Our lives for yours. My life for you. Who would have thought 
even a day earlier that I would be thinking that I might lay down my own life to spare some woman of ill reputation in Jericho in order to spare her life. And yet that's what I was promising her now because that was the, that was really the crux of what it was that God had promised to us. My life for yours. He said, you are safe. You are secure. I am your Savior by my own name, by the life of God himself. It began with our father Abraham when God cut a covenant with Abraham and yet the sacrifices of the covenant Abraham did not walk through. God walked through himself. Those animals split on either side of him as if he alone would say, may this happen to be my life for yours if I do not fulfill everything that I have promised to you. I don't know how it is that God would lay his own life down for us, but that's how sure his promise to us was. And she was putting herself under the banner of Israel and the God of Israel, Yahweh, our God for mercy, our life for yours. And so her plan was that she was going to let us down through a window. You see, her house was right on the wall. And so the window of her home was the window on the wall. Granted, it was a very thick windowsill. You could put lots of plants on there. But she would put a rope that she had that she used to pull in her bundles of flax the same way. Instead of carting them all through the city, they could pull up the bundles of flax and then she would dry them on her roof. And now she would lower us out the same way like a couple of bundles of flax. And so just before we went out the window, I wanted to give her a pledge, a token And I also wanted to be sure that there wasn't any confusion here. It wasn't because of what she would had done for us that we would now do something for her. This wasn't an exchange or a transaction that you'd work out in the marketplace. That if you do something good for God, God will do something good for you. That is not way that is not the way the mercy of Yahweh works. And so if she was going to join herself to Israel and our salvation, she had heard. She had heard of the parting of the Red Sea. And when we came out of Egypt, maybe she had also heard of Passover. If she hadn't, she certainly soon would because we would celebrate this every year. And so we gave her a pledge. We gave her a token that would in some way connect to that story of Passover. I took this red cord that I wore as a belt around my tunic. And I took the red cord and I, and, I, and I gave it to her. And I said, after we have gone, and when Israel comes back, and when Israel surrounds the city to take it, then you are to take this cord and you are to tie it in the window. And when we see the cord in the window, we will know that this is your home. And all of our armies will know not to touch anybody who's inside. So if there's any of your family, your father, your mother, your brothers your sisters, any of your family who will also believe and come to your home for refuge, tell them to stay within the house, to fly the cord out the window and just remain within the home and everybody who stays within your home is going to be saved. If they leave the home, if they go out into the streets, we cannot promise anything for them. But if they will keep themselves sheltered under the roof where the cord is in the window, this red cord, they will be saved. You see, there's something similar to Passover there. God told us that night 40 years ago 
when he brought us out of Egypt, God told us that on this night, this night of judgment, when the firstborn, every firstborn in Egypt would die, if we would take the blood of a Passover lamb and we would mark that on the lintel, the doorposts of our home, and then we would keep ourselves inside that home that was marked by the token of the blood of the Passover lamb, it wasn't that lamb that did it. That was a token of something else. This is what God had told us to do. And so that door, marked with red by the blood of the lamb, and everybody who stayed inside that home on that night, they would be saved by the judgment that was coming across all the land of Egypt. That judgment would pass over them and not touch them. We wanted Rahab, if she was going to put herself under the mercy of the God of Israel. We wanted her to also have an experience of Passover. We wanted her to know what it was for herself too to be safe, to be secure, to be saved under the mark of the red on a home that she herself stayed safely inside. We didn't think putting blood on the door was going to work in all the carnage that was certainly about to happen at Jericho. And so the cord out the window would have to be our mark. And so just as she let us down, she told us to, to, uh, that the soldiers had headed towards the Jordan River, so don't go that way. Instead, they'll never expect it. Her house was on the north end of the city. Go around to the west. Go up into the hills. They'll never look for you behind the city. They'll look for you on your way back to your own people. Wait about three days, and then, then you can come down from the hills. Then you can cross over Jordan. And that's exactly what we did. We got back. We reported to, to Joshua all that we had seen, all that we had discovered. We told him about the city and its defenses. But we told him what we had learned from Jericho. We told him about Jericho. Or we told him about Rahab. We told him about the red cord out her window. We told him that it is just as God has said, that the people of the land are collapsing in fear. They are caving in fear because of what God is doing for us. They stand against us because they're afraid of us, because they know what God is doing. So, Joshua, be strong and courageous. God has given us this land. And God has given us this daughter of the land, this woman named Rahab. Now, you're probably wondering, well, what happened to Jericho? What happened to Rahab? Well, there's, there's more to that story that I'll have to tell another time. But I could tell you this much. You don't know me. You may not even still remember my name. But most people remember my son. His name is Boaz. And you remember Boaz because you remember a woman named Ruth, who he, with integrity and justice and uprightness and mercy, saw her, looked after her, fulfilled all that the word of God said for such a poor widow woman, took her under his wing, and in mercy made her his own wife. Now, where would a guy like Boaz learn something like that in the days of the judges? I tell you, he learned it from his mother. He learned it from my wife, Rahab. 
Oh, it's a scandalous thing you say that a prince of Judah would take such a woman to be his own wife, but she became a godly woman. God had saved her. God had shown her mercy, and she knew what it was to walk before the Lord her God, forgiven and cleansed and upright before him, and yet extending that same tender mercy that she had received toward others. And I'm sure our son Boaz caught it from her. And they had a wonderful family together. In fact, one of the greatest kings ever would come as one of their descendants. But that, too, is another story. So we'll have to leave it there for now. There's a lot in that story, isn't there? It's funny. A a whole people together gather around to Joshua, and they tell him, Joshua... You, you better be strong and courageous. We're with you, buddy. You go. You be courageous. Not knowing that their challenge to him was their challenge to themselves, right? That they were soon, sooner than they knew, going to have to step into that same challenge of courage themselves. Two of them would have to go across the river and into Jericho themselves, trusting themselves to God's care and God's protection and God's provision. They would, they would extend themselves in going into Jericho. They would put themselves in the hands of this woman, Rahab. And they would see God deliver them in the most unexpected way. And they would find that in the process of trusting God, they would have the opportunity to extend his mercy to someone that they would not have imagined. I was reminded of a story earlier this week. One of the, um, uh, the man I was telling, I was describing this. We were talking about this, this story of Joshua chapter 2. And he told me about something that had just happened in his own life, in his own extended family, that there was somebody in his family that was facing a very severe medical issue. And, and in the midst of that, he wanted to share his faith in Christ with him. And so he's talking to him about his faith in Christ. They even go, they go see a Christian movie together. And, and at the end of it all, he's, in, in terms of that visit, and he says, well, well what do you think? And, he's, and his, his relative says, well, you know, that's, I'm glad that's good for you. But, you know, to me, this whole thing about God and Jesus is just a fairy tale. To me, it's just not real. Okay. That's hard, isn't it? When you put yourself out, you, you were courageous. You take a chance. And it's really kind of maybe gently, maybe harshly thrown back at you. Fast forward two years later. There's another get-together of a sort. And in the midst of that and, 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 and family regathered, there's an opportunity, there's a leg, there's a lull, there's one opportunity to talk again one to another. He says, you know, I'd really, I'd really like to talk to you about Jesus. Wow. That's taken a chance, isn't it? You've already tried this once. It wasn't received well. And now you're going to revisit it. You're going to do it again. That takes... Courage. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. You know what the response was? I'd like that. And he talked. He shared his story, shared his testimony. It wasn't complicated. It was just that he had needed God's forgiveness. And he found that in Jesus. And he believed in Jesus as his Savior. And he had eternal life in him. And the end of that conversation... This other relative 
prayed with him to receive Christ as Savior. Would have been easy not to go there again. Would have been easy not to revisit where you've already been rejected once. But the call to be strong and courageous is not only to Joshua. It's also to us. And it's also to Rahab, isn't it? It's also to a woman who knows that this world all around her and all that it would provide and all that it would take from her, this world is passing away and the desires of it. But the one who believes in the true and living God will live forever. But it's hard to turn against the king of Jericho, a king of this world, in order to trust and to believe in the king of glory, the king of heaven. And yet that's the step of salvation that anyone who would believe in Jesus, you're going to turn away from the world and its ridicule and all of its empty promises and you're going to turn instead to the only one who is truly faithful. But you haven't lived in that yet. That will take courage. I want to close in prayer. And I want to, I want to, I want to pray. I want us to pray together two ways. I want us to pray for those that we need the courage to speak to about Jesus. Or maybe to try and to speak to them again. And I want us to pray. Perhaps there's somebody in our midst right this morning. And what they're wrestling with is the courage to believe in Jesus. And I want to invite you that right now, here today, right where you sit, you can. You can hang this cord out your window and say that Jesus is my Savior. I believe he died for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you, would you by your Spirit, Lord, give us courage. Lord, who are we that anyone would listen to us? Who are we that the God of heaven would hear us? And yet you do. And so because you hear us, Father, because we talk to you about those that are on our hearts, as, as Gabe so well put earlier, those that we worry about, Lord, those are whom we bring to you. And we'll trust you to them. Oh, Lord, then give us courage to be your messengers, to be your witness, to simply tell of what we know about Jesus, how he has forgiven us. Oh, Lord, I, I pray as well. Perhaps there are some here this morning that can be comfortable enough with church as church. But when it comes to do I really believe in this Jesus for myself, they're not so sure. Oh, Father, would you give the, them the courage to put the red cord in the window, so to speak, to be able to confidently say, I believe in Jesus who loved me and died for me. I don't understand all of it, but I understand this. I am guilty before God, and Jesus is my Savior who died in my place, his life for mine. Oh, God. And on that basis, you will save them. You will give them new life, eternal life, as your own child. Father, as we give ourselves now even in receiving this offering, 
Maybe that communication card is a time to communicate, I believe in Jesus. Maybe it's a time to ask, pray for my brother, my sister, my mother, my father, my friend, my child. Father, as we give this offering, as we give these names, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. Hear our prayer, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.